0: You are listening to the preaching ministry of Christ Church San Antonio. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.christchurchsa.com. Thank you for listening. Genesis chapter 2 is where we find ourselves, verses 18 through 25, very beginning of the Bible, second chapter of the Bible, Genesis 2 18 through 25. This text should be behind me. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along there. So let's give our attention to God's word this morning. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called, every living creature, that was its name. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would come and do good work through the Holy Spirit and through the scripture on our hearts as we consider this morning the institution of marriage and how the gospel changes our own marriages. So Spirit, we need your help if we're going to hear and do what you call us to. And so we ask for you to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're new to Christ Church or relatively new to Christ Church, then you should know that as a church, we have one primary goal that informs everything else about our organization. And that is to see the gospel of God's grace change us. Our number one core value as a church is that the gospel changes everything. We believe that wholeheartedly. We started this church three years ago um, with that idea, with that truth, sort of firmly embedded into our DNA, and wanting to talk about and see that truth of the gospel shape and form us as a people. And we don't just want to give intellectual assent to that idea. We don't believe that the gospel is just an entry point into Christianity. We believe that the gospel is the A to Z as some have said, of the Christian life and not just the ABCs. It's not just the way we get saved. It's the way we grow in our faith. It's through more and more understanding the beauty and the glory of the gospel. The gospel changes everything. That is where we're waving our banner. It's what we're all about as a church. And so if that is true... If that's true, how is the gospel going to help us in our marriages? That's, that's the big question that for the next four weeks we're going to consider together as we do this brief topical series called Happily Ever After, looking at the idea of marriage, which is the most important human relationship. And here's the thing, if we intend to take the gospel seriously... And if we, as followers of Jesus, want to endeavor to obey him and love him, then we should expect to feel the effects of gospel change in our most important relationships, namely our marriage and other relationships. And so what we're going to do in the following weeks is explore some of these questions. How can we grow in our marriages? How can our marriages get more healthy? Why is marriage often so difficult? And as we think about those things and introduce the idea this morning, I need to make just a couple of introductory comments just for a minute. First, let me say this. You should listen to these sermons even if you're not married. Um, Now, I know what it's like if you're divorced or widowed or single or a young person, you might immediately be faced with the temptation to just sort of turn off for the next few weeks and see this is irrelevant, but it's not irrelevant. It's not irrelevant to you even if you're not married yet. Just on a very practical level, statistically most of us in here are married or one day will be married. And even if you're single or divorced or widowed, it's important for you to be surrounded by healthy marriages as a church community, and just in life in general. But that's especially true here. Healthy, growing marriages are in your best interest. They're in the interest of your spiritual growth, even if you yourself aren't currently married. And the reason for that is because we are one with one another. If we're following Jesus, according to the scripture, we're intimately tied together in this family that we call the church, so that when others hurt, we hurt and when others thrive, we thrive. So this might be a new thought, but it's true that other people's marriages to some degree affect your spiritual health. You know that? That's a natural outflow of the idea that we're together, we're unified in Christ as a faith family, we're connected. So I wanna encourage you to listen, to think, to pray as we move forward in the coming weeks on this topic. So, today I want to lay the groundwork for the next few weeks by exploring together what marriage is all about. What is the purpose of marriage? What is marriage for? Why does it exist? If you're a Christian, uh, perhaps you will know that God is the creator of marriage, God designed marriage. It is God's idea. It is God's institution. So as God discloses himself and his will for our lives in the Bible, we should expect to learn something about marriage there, and we do. And so this morning, we're going to look all the way back at these verses that I just read, the very beginning of the story of the Bible, before the entry of sin into the world, all the way back to the early parts of our universe to discover God's purpose for marriage. And so let me give you the purpose This is my summary. And then we'll break this statement down. Here's the main idea. The purpose of marriage. Marriage is a committed companionship intended to grow us in the gospel. That's the main idea. That summarizes the scriptures teaching about the purpose of marriage. It is a committed companionship intended to grow us in the gospel. So I want to break that sentence down into three parts as we move through Genesis 2 this morning. First, let's look at the idea that marriage is a companionship second, it's a committed companionship, and then third, it's a committed companionship intended to grow us in the gospel. Okay, first, marriage is a companionship. Look at the story. The first thing to see that the Bible begins to do when it answers the question, what is the purpose of marriage, is explain to us that marriage is a companionship. It's a friendship. In our text, What I just read, we find ourselves in the very early days of history. And if you've read this story before, you'll know that in Genesis 1, God declares things to be good. He makes the world and he says, that's good. Seven times before the story that we just read, God says, this is good. And so it's very significant that in verse 18, God says something is not good. Something is not good. Not good. How can Adam, the first man, be in a not good condition, in a perfect world, and in a perfect relationship with God? Well, God says that it is not good that man should be alone. And God knows this because God himself, in his very being, the real God, is inherently relational. That's one implication of the doctrine of the Trinity that Christianity teaches. Within God's own essence, he exists in perfect relational harmony as Father, Son, and Spirit. God inherently exists in communion. In relationship, in friendship within his own being. I know that's a mind blower, but it's what the Bible discloses to us about scripture. And this kind of God made us in his image. He made man in his image. So part of what it means to be an image bearer of an inherently relational God is that we, if we're going to be fully human, so to speak, if we're going to be fully bearers of God's image, need to be in relationships not just marriage, but relationship with other people. We were created to be connected to other humans, not to be isolated from them. And so in response to man being alone, God creates what Genesis calls a helper, a helper fit for him. Now that word helper means companion or friend. It does not mean servant or slave, by the way. A lot of bad teaching has been done on that verse. It means friend. It means compadre. It means partner. Okay? So God gives the woman to the man and the man to the woman. He makes them husband and wife to prevent and to end loneliness. To prevent and to end isolation. That's one thing we see. God creates their union in marriage for the purpose of friendship. For the purpose of deep vibrant, spiritual, emotional, and physical partnership, and Adam likes this. Look at verse 23. This is poetry. He says, basically, you complete me, to use Jerry Maguire as an illustration there. He's saying, meeting you, Eve, meeting you fills a void in me. And then we see God officiate the first human marriage between Adam and Eve in verse 24. So marriage was created by God to fill the void that loneliness brings in our lives. Marriage is intended for companionship. And it's a deep, a deep companionship that is intended. It's meant to be a companionship that is both constant and transparent. We'll talk about the constant part of that in a moment. But for now, look at the idea of transparency. Verse 25 says that they were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, that means a lot of things, but one thing it undoubtedly means is that the first couple was fully open. They were fully known to each other and by each other. They were completely themselves in the presence of the other. Marriage, you see, marriage should bring us all what One author puts like this. Listen to what Dinah Craig writes. Marriage should bring us all, quote, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with the person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all right out, just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and then with the breath of kindness, blow the rest away. So, so if God made marriage to be a deep and transparent companionship with another person, practically, think about this with me, doesn't that radically alter the standards and the things we tend to look for in prospective spouses? For those of you that aren't yet married, I think this is really an important thing to consider. When you're looking for a prospective spouse or thinking about the kind of person you want to marry, historically, Western culture especially, bases that on two major things. We base what we're looking for primarily in our day and age, without question, on on romantic physical chemistry. That's one option. And the second option is that we base it on social status or maybe to flesh that out a little bit, we base it on whether this person can give us the life that we desire long-term. And and I want to just show you that both of those are problematic. They're problematic metrics to make the most important means by which you look for a spouse. And here's why they're both problematic. Neither of those things are durable. There's a another guy in our denomination who's been around college ministry for a long time that famously says a lot of really funny things about marriage. And I remember hearing him give a marriage talk one time when I was a college student, and he gave this illustration. He said, basically, it doesn't matter, guys, if you marry Heidi Klum, if you marry a supermodel, the most beautiful person in the world, in a few years, you're going to be telling her to move out of the way so you can see the TV. It doesn't matter how beautiful they are. That should not be the most important metric because that is going to fade. It's not durable. It's not going to last. And so it shouldn't be the most important metric that we use in looking for a prospective spouse. And socioeconomic status is also something that isn't durable. That can change overnight as well. Listen, when people think they have found compatibility solely based on these things, they often make the painful discovery that they've built their relationships on sand. I'm not saying those things aren't important at all. They are important, but they should not be ultimate when thinking about who it is you want to marry. Marriage should be fundamentally based not on attractiveness, not on potential social status, not on common interests, but on but on friendship, on the compatibility of the long-term companionship. You should marry someone who you can look at and say, this person can be my best friend for the rest of my life. Now, just to be autobiographical for just a minute, Marianne and I have been married for 13 years or so, and one of the great joys and benefits of our marriage is that we were best friends for multiple years. I got her permission to say this. We were best friends for multiple years before we ever dated. We built a a lasting, solid, vibrant friendship and relationship before we dated. And our campus minister would often say to Marianne, you and Luke should date. And she'd be like, why would I want to date Luke? We're just friends, right? We didn't see it at the time, but we were actually forming the foundation for what we hope is a healthier and healthier marriage over time. Friendship and companionship in our own marriage has been one of, the, one of the great blessings of God in our life. Marriage is primarily intended to be a companionship. Secondly, we see that it's a committed companionship. It's a committed companionship. What I mean by that is that the friendship and the companionship of the marriage relationship should be consistently and constantly the top priority in your life for the rest of your life. We can see this in the Genesis story. Look in verse 24. There we read these very famous words, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. That's quoted in most marriage ceremonies. And here's something to notice. The relationship formed in marriage is so important that what we see here is a transfer of loyalty, a transfer of belonging taking place. When you get married, your primary relationship changes from parent-child, from your own clan to husband-wife, to a new clan that is being formed by your marriage. And in ancient cultures, the clan was most important. The family was most important. The parent-child relationship was more cherished even than it is today in our society. And so for Genesis 2 to say, you will leave that relationship, it will no longer be primary in its definition of you, but this new marriage will be primary, is to say something really important. It's to say that this companionship formed in marriage is to be committed. It's to be super important. It's to be the number one horizontal priority in your life. Jesus talks about this too. In the New Testament, in Matthew, the first gospel, Matthew 19, Jesus is trying to, he, the Pharisees, the religious authorities, are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to set him, up, set him up by asking him, is divorce valid? Is divorce okay? And Jesus gives this great answer, but one thing he does is he quotes our verse, Genesis two twenty four, and then he says, what God has joined together, let no man tear apart. Let no man put asunder. So what Jesus is doing there, among other things, is implying the significance of the commitments, the significance of the commitment of this marriage companionship. Here's another way to think about that, okay? We often use language of covenant when we talk about marriage. It's a covenantal relationship. That is to say, it's a relationship based on promises that we have made to one another vows, right? And and it's important for you to hear, I think, that those vows and promises don't make the relationship less intimate or less romantic. They actually make the relationship more intimate and more romantic. Think of it. To make a public binding vow, a commitment to another person, is an act of enormous love in itself. Listen to how one author on marriage puts it. Someone who says, I love you, but we don't need to be married, may be saying, I don't love you enough to curtail my freedom for you. The willingness to enter a binding covenant far from stifling love is a way of enhancing, even supercharging it. A wedding promise is proof that your love is actually at marriage level as well as a radical act of self-giving all by itself. I hope that makes intuitive sense to you. The English author G.K. Chesterton relatively often points out in his writing that that when we fall in love with something or someone, we have a natural inclination to make promises to that person. And if you're married, you know, in your courtship, in your dating relationship, and hopefully even still now, you, you would do those sorts of things. I would I love you so much I will die for you. It's it's the stuff of Disney movies, right? When we really love someone, when we really feel passionate, we want to make these radical promises. It's just inherent. It flows naturally out of the love. What that says is that real love instinctively desires permanence. Real love instinctively wants commitments. The Bible is full of love poetry. You might not have known that. One entire book of the Bible is a big, erotic love poem. We're not preaching on that. Preach on Genesis 2. I'm just going to quote one verse right now. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Listen to what the song says place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's ardor as unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. Do you hear that passionate language? That passionate language is flowing into the idea of place me as a seal on your arm. Commit yourself to me. So here's a practical application of the idea that marriage is a committed companionship, if you want a healthy marriage, if you want a healthy life, your marriage relationship has to be more important to you than any other vertical, or excuse me, than any other horizontal relationship. By that I mean any other relationship that is not God. Marriage needs to get, it needs to get your most spiritual, emotional, and relational energy, not the leftovers. Leftovers. And most marriage problems, in my experience as a pastor and in my experience in my own marriage, most marriage problems that I see uh, flow from the process of other priorities, good priorities, bumping marriage down a peg. Uh, they flow, the problems flow from when you begin to give the marriage your relational, spiritual, and emotional leftovers. The Bible says that marriage is your primary human relationship. That's how God designed it. It's the only human relationship that can shift our allegiances so radically as we leave our father and mother. And so listen, we're going to explore this in the coming weeks. But if you think, if you think that your relationship is, in marriage is, is a sidebar to something else you consider more important, you are in trouble. It can't be a sidebar to your career. It cannot be a sidebar to your children. It cannot be a sidebar, sidebar to a hobby or an interest, and it cannot be a sidebar to the church. Marriage has to be primary. Now we're gonna play that out in more practical detail in the coming weeks, but, but for now, let me give you an illustration, and then we'll go to point three. And Mary Ann came up with this illustration or read it somewhere, so I'm stealing this from her. Um, Think about your life as a jar. And the jar, you know, the jar is going to be filled by all the stuff going on in your life. And say every issue, every significant thing in your life is a rock, represented by a rock. And you can only fit so many things in the jar before the jar is full and begins to overflow. What you want to do is put the most important rocks, the biggest rocks in the jar first. And then when the big rocks are in the jar, when their place in your life is secure, maybe you'll have room for some other things, for the little pebbles. And what we often tend to do is think that things that really are sidebars in our life are the biggest rocks. The biggest rock that should have a permanent fixture in the jar of your life is your marriage. And when your marriage goes down a peg, when your marriage becomes something that's getting the leftovers of your energy, That's the first sign of pending trouble. And really working for a healthy marriage is the process of regularly working on keeping that relationship primary and fundamental in the focus of your day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year rhythms. So marriage is a committed companionship. And the reason that the Bible lays marriage out this way, the reason that the Bible says marriage should have your top priority is because your marriage is the relationship in your life that more than any other will demonstrate to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has that kind of power. And that is why it should have that kind of significance in your life. So let's talk about that thirdly. Okay, marriage is a committed companionship intended to grow us in the gospel. That Genesis 2 is a famous verse, verse 24, and it's quoted a lot in the New Testament. We already saw Jesus quote it once. The apostle Paul quotes it as well in his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter five. We're gonna look more at that text in the coming weeks, but for now, in verses 31 and 32 of Ephesians five, Paul quotes Genesis two twenty four. And then amazingly, Paul says, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it, that is the mystery of marriage, it refers to Christ and the church. What does that mean? It means that, listen, of all human relationships, marriage most mirrors the gospel. Marriage will teach us more about the love and grace of God in the gospel than any other experience we will have in life. Marriage was invented by God, Paul says here, to portray the work of Jesus for his people. It is intended as a picture of the gospel. It is is a daily training ground, marriage. Every day and every night, for God to teach us the beauty and the joy and the glory of the gospel. Well, how does that work? Well, the gospel tells us that God himself gave up his own life, his own rights, and sacrificed himself for the other, for us. And marriage is a companionship where two people are committed to dying to their own self for the sake of and for the good of the other person. Each partner sacrifices his or her own rights and privileges for the good of the other. That's the nature of the committed companionship, and that is an exact replica of the gospel, you see. This works more in marriage than anywhere else because in marriage, more than anywhere else, guess what, in marriage more than anywhere else, you see how bad you really are. You know that? You cannot hide from your spouse, at least not for long. Your spouse is going to see the real you. And you know what? Via your spouse, you're going to see more of the real you. You're going to see how dirty and messy and whacked out you can be. You're going to see your selfishness. You're going to see the power of your own self-will. You're going to see your self-centered spirit coming out every day because there's this other person that's connected to you so much that the Bible says you're one flesh. This other person is connected to you saying, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like what I see here. Marriage is going to show you how bad you are. It's going to show you the real you. But the beauty of marriage is is that your spouse sees how bad you can really be and yet still loves you. You see in marriage, more than any other relationship, how bad you are and you see how loved you really are. And here's how. The person who knows you the best still loves you the best. No other human relationship approximates so well for us God's love in Jesus those times when your spouse drives you crazy or angers you or just says something super nasty and mean to you, venomous, those are the times when, when you are being reminded more deeply than any other time of the gospel. It's a training ground for the gospel because, because of this. We anger Jesus. We drove Jesus crazy. We hated Jesus, we spat venomous words at Jesus, and he still sacrificed and gave himself for us. So when you see that Jesus did that for you, you can do it for others through his power. And when you see a spouse do that for you, in your worst moments, you again can worship the God who has done that for you in Jesus. Marriage mirrors for you every waking moment the truth of God's sacrificial love for you in Jesus. And that's its purpose. It's a committed companionship intended to grow us in the gospel. Folks, listen, there's never a day, there is never a day in any of our marriages where we aren't called to be willing to lay our lives down. There's never a day when some personal sacrifice is not needed. There's never a day when we are free from the need to consider the good of our husbands or wives. There's never a day when we aren't called to do something that's probably not going to be reciprocated or to offer something that might not be deserved. There's never a day when our marriages can can coast along without being infused with this kind of love. And so there's never a day in marriage where we are not leaning on, resting in, and learning about the fact that God has loved us in just this way. And now through his spirit in our marriages empowers us and compels us and teaches us and helps us to do the same. And don't we all need to be reminded of that, of that kind of love, of the love of God for us every day? The number one place for that is in our marriages. Can I tell you something? Marianne and I got into like three fights this week. Week one of my marriage series, three fights at least. In Revelation, we never fought. We didn't fight about the millennium any when I was preaching through Revelation. Can you believe that? No fights on whether Jesus is coming after or before the rapture. Never even came up. Week one of the marriage series, multiple fights. And here's why. This series is forcing Marianne and I, and, and by God's grace, will force you as well to deal, with, to deal with your own junk, to deal with the, with the relational weeds that are growing in your marriage right now. And God in the gospel is calling us to do the good gospel work of pulling the weeds of our of our marriage garden and replanting good seeds. That's our purpose here in these coming weeks. Because your marriage is the best possible place for you to more and more experience the great love of God for you in Jesus Christ. So it may it be the case with us in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help as we in the coming days, think about our marriage relationships. Father, we pray that you would grant our church marriages that are healthy, marriages that are growing and thriving in their commitment to self-sacrifice, to love, to service, to kindness and goodwill, to mirroring and modeling the gospel of Jesus. We pray for those of us here who are not married, and who want to be, or who were once married and are no longer, that they would benefit from these sermons and from our time in the coming weeks as well, that they would actually serve um, the body of Jesus through praying for our marriages and by sharing their own experiences, God, to strengthen existing marriages. God, we ask that you would make our body here at Christ Church, healthier and more mature, more steadfast and faithful in our attempts to follow you as we consider this super important human relationship and what you have to tell us about it. So God, we need your help for that. And as we continue in worship, we ask that you would empower us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to do it in our lives, even this week. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.